we've been open since mid-October and we've had about four and a half hours where parking was over full. Resorts on public land use this term called comfortable carrying capacity and it, it's kind of a, a review of all of your facilities. And for us, parking is the lowest number. You know, our, our mountain and our lifts actually can handle quite a bit more than than what our CCC is. But when people arrive, especially if they've had a tough drive getting here and there's not a spot for them, that, that is one of the most upset, angry guests you'll ever encounter. And, and we just couldn't do it anymore. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester to the top of the world today as we visit with the man at the top of Arapahoe Basin. If you are new to the podcast, I have something to tell you. First, thank you. I am stoked you're here and I hope you like the show. Second, the podcast is a small part of the storm. For the full experience, you need to go to stormskiing.com and sign up for the storm skiing newsletter. That is the heart of this whole operation and I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing 12 months a year on that platform. There's also an article that accompanies this podcast that has a ton of extra context. Also, you'll want to follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. I am constantly breaking news, especially on Twitter. This week alone, I broke the story on Indy Pass, adding a half dozen cross-country ski areas and a standalone cross-country pass. I let the world know where A-Basin's Lenawee Triple was heading this summer, and I tweeted out that Big Sky's Swift Current Quad would land at Sugarloaf's West Mountain expansion next year. Okay, I have one more question for you. Do you subscribe to Mountain Gazette yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you, having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. Let me tell you about Mountain Gazette 197, which is heading to the printer in the coming weeks. The spring 2022 issue is going to be stuffed with the kind of picks and stories you will not find anywhere else. Here's what I mean. The new issue features a stunning photo gallery of outdoor culture in Kiev, Ukraine before the Russian invasion. There is a story about mountain town soccer prospects a photo gallery by the one and only Jimmy Chin. That's right, the Oscar winner makes his Mountain Gazette debut in issue 197. Plus, long form stories about skiing, the Jackson Hole backcountry, biking, whitewater rafting, climbing, and much more. If you think print is dead, you are wrong. The only way to reserve a copy is to subscribe. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 82, Alan Hensroth, Chief Operating Officer of Arapahoe Basin, Colorado. There are a lot of good stories in skiing today, but I don't know if anyone is handling the modern evolution of the sport better than Arapahoe Basin. As a lot of the big boys double down on volume, A-Basin is limiting pass and ticket sales. A few years back, faced with a parking crunch and exploding visits, they ditched the epic pass after a decades-long partnership with Vail Resorts. And as they decreased the number of the mountain, 
Arapahoe Basin has added two major terrain expansions in the past 15 years, and they have continued to increase uphill capacity. When the Lenawee Triple is replaced by a six-pack this summer, the oldest lift at A-Basin will be the Zuma Quad installed in 2007. So, the mountain is increasing uphill capacity while decreasing overall capacity. And as you'll hear Alan tell me in this podcast, business has never been better. This is part of the reason why everyone loves this joint. But there's so much more. The long season, the killer terrain, the overall vibe, the beach, and the man who joins us today has been a big, big part of it all since 1988. Alan Hensroth is one of the most respected people in skiing, and you are about to hear why for yourself. Let's go. My guest today has been the Chief Operating Officer of Arapahoe Basin, Colorado since 2005. Arapahoe Basin has 147 trails, spread across 1,428 acres on a 2,530-foot vertical drop. The mountain has a base elevation of 10,520 feet and receives an average of 350 inches of annual snowfall, allowing the ski area to stay open as late as August in its best years. It is often the first ski resort in North America to open for the season. Arapahoe Basin has one of the newest lift fleets in the United States, the oldest of its six chairlifts dates to 2001. He has worked at the ski area in various roles since 1988. Alan Hensroth is my guest. Alan, welcome to the storm. So good to have you on the program. Oh, great to be here, Stuart. Thank you so much for inviting me. So first off, Alan, how is the season going at the Legend? And I guess more specifically, how are things going for you today? (laughs) Well, today it's snowing heavily. I seventy's closed. Loveland Pass is closed. We're trying to get enough employees up here to get things going, but uh, it's snowing, so that is good. So on days like this, in the middle of a storm, can you get out there and ski at all? If you're the only ones up at the mountain, or do you just have to wait for the storm to blow through, let patrol do their thing before you can get out there? Well, we're out there now, Um, you know, the patrols out there moving around and and so are the lift crews and uh, hasn't quite snowed that much where we shut things down, but we get out, we get out right away in the storms. Does anyone live up there? Because I know where you see Interlodge a lot and shutdowns and the hotels is up in Little Cottonwood Canyon in Utah. And, you know, the fortunate folks, and I've been there before where I've been staying at the cliff and the canyon has been closed and I got to get out and get after it. Do you have anyone staying up there, either employee housing or any sort of limited guest arrangements so a few people can enjoy it? Or or is it pretty much uh, you're just getting through it and getting ready for to open the mountain to the public? You know, um, we don't have anybody that lives here now. We have at times in the past. Uh, I lived here for four years at one point when I was younger. Um but, but we, uh, we keep an eye on the storms when things really start happening. Maybe a few of us will spend the night up here. But for the most part, we uh, come up each morning, often quite early. How's the snowpack looking this year, Alan? Do you think you're going to make July 4th? No, I don't, I don't think it's going to be a July 4th year unless something really, really changes the next six weeks. But, but we're looking good to make it into June, which we do almost every single year. 
Nice. Great tradition in a mountain full of great traditions. Let's go back to the beginning here, Alan. Arapahoe Basin is one of many, many mountains started by the 10th Mountain Division after those soldiers returned from World War II. So talk, tell us about who founded A-Basin and when. Well, A-Basin uh, opened in 1946, and its first president was a 10th Mountain Division guy named Larry Jump. And uh, he had served in Europe, and uh, he actually even served with the French Army before the U.S. had entered the war. But uh, uh, Larry, when he first returned, got together with a guy named Sandy Schoffler, and they... um, were hired by the Denver Chamber of Commerce to look for ski area sites. And so they had a great wander around Colorado. They found Arapahoe Basin. They connected with a few other ski luminaries, uh, Thor Groswald and Max Durkham and Dick Durance. And the five of them got together and were the original founders of Arapahoe Basin, Inc., Does it ever amaze you to think back on those days? Because these days we make such a big thing about getting to these mountain environments and having the right tires and and all the technology we have in our vehicles. I mean, they were doing this at the top of the Continental Divide back in the 1940s with with none of the things I just mentioned and very rudimentary vehicles. When you think back on that time, it it seems like such an amazing site to put a ski area. Oh, I, I can't believe they did it to tell you the truth. I mean, the foresight that they had and, uh, at a time when there really wasn't a model for ski resorts, they found this place. Uh, they figured out how to put lifts in. They they got around, and uh, the equipment was not necessarily good back in those days. And it still blows me away that they did what they did in 1946. You know, I've I've spoken to quite a few folks who manage ski areas that were founded by the 10th Mountain Division, and it's it's amazing how that pride transcends the generations and how that's still something that they anchor themselves to. Even in most cases, most of those folks have are long gone at this point. Why is it that, that this founding by the 10th mountain division is something that becomes such an important part of these ski areas identities. And, and more specifically, I guess, how does that legacy transfer to what Arapahoe basin is and what it considers itself to be today? Well, yeah, you know, there were a few ski areas that started in the 30s, but really this group of people that got things going in the 40s and maybe even into the 50s, this is where it all began. And and our roots, I think, are are at the beginning. And uh, we've seen so many changes, but I think, you know, a really common theme we talk about a lot at Arapahoe Basin, but even going back to the beginning, you know, the culture and the vibe of this place was something really special. And and you can see that in the old photos. You can see it in the old movies. Um, and and it, really, it really means something to know that we've been around for so long. So there was a pretty rich legacy that rolled out in the decades before you arrived. Uh, but nonetheless, you've been there for quite a while now. You arrived at Arapahoe Basin in 1988. Tell us what you found there when you first arrived at the ski area. What did Arapahoe Basin look like in 1988 when you showed up? Well, the mountain looked pretty much the same then as it does now. The, the facilities were fairly different. You know, Arapahoe Basin's history, Larry and his friends had founded the place. Um, in 1972, they sold it to Joe Jankowski and 
he sold it to Ralston Purina in 1978. And the place was a little rough then. Um, it was almost a scrape off when Ralston bought it. But, but Ralston did a really good job in those first couple of years and in, in cleaning up the lifts. They put in several new chair lifts. They redid all the buildings. So there wasn't near as much here in 1988 as there is now, but, but the place looked pretty good then. Tell me about the people. I'd imagine that in the 80s, there were still a few of the old timers shaking around the place and telling their old war stories and about the ski area and and maybe about the war itself. So just talk about the folks who animated the Scaria back then and the local skiers and the people running the place and, and how they, they brought you on board with a basin. Well, the, uh, uh, there are a lot of characters at Arapaho basin now, and there were a lot back then. And, uh, again, they were really focused on the incredible ski and the incredible mountain that this place has, you know, unfortunately the, the founders are all gone now. Um, and there's not too many people left from that era, but, but I had, a, I've had the fortune to meet a lot of great people that were involved and developed the place and kept it going and redeveloped the place. And, uh, gosh, there's a special twinkle in everybody's eye that's, that's been here through so much of it. Did you have any particular mentor or, or, or anyone who really made you feel like this was the place for you long-term? You know, I really did. Uh, uh, the general manager, when I was hired here, the guy that hired me was a guy named Jim Gelling. And um, he really showed me the ropes. He was a tough, hard-nosed kind of guy, at least on the surface. Ultimately, he turned out to be kind of a softy. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, we're, we're, we're still great friends. And um, But he really, really introduced me to the place. Even though I had worked here a little bit before 1988 and I skied here a lot. It was a whole nother story to, to, to start working here full time. And Jim really guided me through all that time. So what brought you to Rapperhill Basin in 1988 and what were you doing with yourself before that? Well, I had um, moved to Summit County in 1983. I, I graduated from college in Flagstaff and uh, I moved here literally just to spend a winter skiing like so many people. <laughs> And uh, I started working at Keystone and um, Keystone and Arapaho were the same company then. And um, I, I, you know, I probably had a dozen jobs in five years at Keystone, but most of it was zeroed in on ski patrol. And um, I had been a patroller. I was a patrol supervisor. And um, the opportunity for the patrol director job opened up at Arapaho Basin. And in those days, it's hard to imagine it now, but you know, we were we were one company, and it was just a departmental transfer to to come here at that time. So, I loved the basin already, and this chance came up. I didn't think I had any chance of getting the job, and um, and I did. Uh, I, I got really lucky, and so I just you know I just transferred departments. It was as simple as that. So you came out from Arizona. Did you grow up there? Uh, mostly, you know, middle school and high school, and I went to college and flag. Did you grow up skiing? You know, I started skiing in middle school at a sunrise and purgatory, you know, so I would do maybe a couple long weekend kind of ski trips through middle school and high school. And, and then in college, would you ski at the snowball? I did. I started, that's where I started skiing a lot. And, uh, you know, Arizona snowball, if you've never been there, it's a, it's a great mountain. They have really good snow, um, good terrain, 
you can see the Grand Canyon from the top. It's it's just a beautiful place to ski. So I got I got lucky there getting a chance to that was the place I really started skiing a lot. And and was it was it being up there in that high alpine environment? Did something spark in you and say, okay, I want to I want to go to the big time. I want to do Colorado. Now, now Snowball is a big place, 3000 feet of vertical. It's a serious mountain, but you know, Colorado is Colorado. So talk about what inspired you to move from Flagstaff to Summit County. Well, yeah, you know, good question. It it really was as simple as a couple of buddies of mine wanted to spend a winter skiing. And, uh, you know, I'd studied forestry at NAU and my, my aspiration was to work for the park service, be a park ranger of sorts. Although when you're 22, you don't really know what you want to do, but that's, Mm -hmm. that's what I was striving for. And I spent a winter skiing. I actually started ski patrolling to get some, you know, rescue experience to help me get a job as a ranger. And after a while it turned out, Hey, this is all the stuff that I want to do. I like working at the ski areas. And after a few years, it, it stuck. So you wound up at Keystone and then Arapahoe Basin, which, as you mentioned, were both owned for a long time by Ralston Perina, which is a funny thing to think about now. And <laughs> John Reveal, your your coworker, who was at Arapahoe Basin for many years, he said that Arapahoe Basin referred to itself as, quote, the stepchild, unquote, when it was part of that ownership group. What did he mean by that, Alan? And how did that help the ski area form its modern identity? Well, you know, John is a, a great character and unfortunately we lost him this year, but mm, sorry about um, that. yeah, um, in those days, like I said, Ralston and Keystone, they put a lot into a basin initially and didn't do much after that for the next 20 years, uh, other than basic maintenance. And, and I think Keystone was really on the rise at that time. And so you know, that company, they could have invested money at a basin or they could have invested money at Keystone and they did. And, uh, that's what they did. And they, they built North peak and they built the outback and they built a big conference center and they started upgrading Keystone's lifts. And I just think it was, uh, it was the priority in that organization at that time. So at the basin, we kind of just got by with, uh, whatever we could and, uh, made the best of it. So Arapaho Basin for a long time, whether it had that investment or not, it really got by on its terrain alone. And it's called the legend for a reason. There's some really rowdy terrain up there, Alan. For those who may not be familiar with A-Basin's terrain, just take us through this real quick and talk about what people will find in the way of really treacherous stuff if they're really looking for it at your mountain. Well, I'm not sure I would use the word treacherous, but I would uh, <laughs> call it some, you know, there is some great double black skiing. We, you know, we have a little bit of green terrain, not a lot. We have some great blues. And then we, we really just have some fabulous black and double black diamond terrain. You know, we have this area called Pallavicini, which is, uh, that was Ralston Purina put in a lift in 1978, the Pallavicini lift or Polly is what it's called locally great steep stuff at the time in 78 some of the steepest terrain around um really good terrain out there we have the east wall which goes up to over 13,000 feet beautiful terrain there lots of great hiking good stuff in montezuma bowl good stuff in the steep gullies but you know it while we have something for everyone 
you know, a black and double black diamond skier is going to really love it here. So you spent several years as ski patrol director, and I would imagine you had some pretty dramatic rescues in that time. Just take us into this. What were some of those those really dicey situations that you had to extract people from? And, and how often does that actually happen? You know, the, the really, really difficult ones where people get in hairy, hairy spots doesn't really happen that often, fortunately. And, um, you know, I think, you know, one of the more memorable ones, which had a great ending, it was easy. I, I do recall one time this guy, for some reason, he got out on the edge of this big rock we call Kong Rock, and and he got stuck there. And he was he was smart enough not to try and jump off it, but he couldn't get out of it on his own. And how high was he? He was pretty high. I bet he was. You know, Kong Rock's probably forty or fifty feet tall. And Ooh. another patroller and I set up a belay system and went down there and picked him up and and got him out of there. And and then nobody was ever hurt. And. uh it was a good ending. I, I kind of like that story. You know, it's, it's, it's something that most of us don't think about very often. And I've been skiing for a while and I had my first sled evac this year at Black Mountain of Maine. And I was on a groomed trail. It wasn't a groomed trail, but it was an open trail. And I was probably a few hundred yards from the bottom. It was still a whole process of, you know, I had a broken leg, so I was in bad shape and they had to hoist me up and, and tie me down and, and get me all the way down. And it, it took, you know, 30, 40 minutes just to do that. So I can't imagine this sort of thing that the things you encounter when you're working at a place, the size and complexity of Arapahoe Basin, and just and just thinking about the, the sorts of things you had to deal with every day is is probably far beyond what most patrollers have to deal with around the country, I would think. Well, you know, we definitely did and, and still do. And, and we take that we take that work very, very seriously. You know, we have a great ski patrol today and those guys spend a lot of time working on technical rescues. Uh, you know, they always have a training topic of the week or month. I know just, they just finished up, uh, uh, take, everybody's got to take a toboggan run down Polly again, just to make sure we're staying fresh. And it, it can be kind of difficult at times for sure. And what is your, just talk about avalanche control for a moment and, you know, Air Basin is pretty open and it's pretty high. How big of a part of your operations is that? And 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 just talk about the process of what patrol has to do to make that mountain safe after a storm. You know, it's a, it is a really big part of what we do uh, on on many different levels. It's a really big part of what we do, and it's something we are doing the entire time. There's snow on the ground, and uh, you know, the first patroller gets here about four four thirty in the morning whether it's snowing or not, and, and does a bunch of uh, weather measurements and, and checking our various weather stations. And they make a, a plan for the day. And uh, it just depends on what's going on. It may be very warm or it may be very cold. It may be snowing a lot. It may be windy. And uh, we are, th- there's a lot that goes into it. And at times, especially when it's snowing, it's almost all consuming for us. So there's there's a lot of work that goes into it. I've read that in parts of the Mountain West, they still use World War II era surplus guns to clear the slopes. Is that something you do or do you use something else for the charges? You know, we don't do that, but uh, those have been used in the past at Arapaho Basin. We 
use a lot of hand charges. And we also have a few avalanchers, which are not like military hardware, but they're um, uh, fueled with gas. Uh, um, they use nitrogen to propel a charge out on the slope. And so we have a few of those in place. We also have a few uh, what, uh, what we call tram systems, but where we string a wire across a big area that we might slide an explosive down the wire. Um, we have a really elaborate system for that in the steep gullies. And um, uh, it's, it's a lot. Boy, those guys are really busy. The team is really busy when it's snowing, using all of that equipment. How big is your patrol? We have about 55 patrollers right now. Wow. So you, you led that team for 11 years. In 1999, you changed positions to become director of mountain operations. How did that opportunity come your way and why was it of interest to you? Well, it, it, it didn't happen overnight. And um, the last, I think, three years I was ski patrol director. I, I also, my title had changed to patrol director and mountain manager. And I had started picking up a few other things. So I was still patrol director. I think I had taken over lifts at that time and maybe base area and uh, snow removal. So it, it kind of grew um, with time. I, you know, I really enjoyed patrolling. There was a lot of fun and excitement and satisfaction doing that work. And um, Gentling was still my boss. And it kind of reached a point where it probably was time for me to, to, to step away and bring another person in. And, and Jim and I spent, oh, probably a year talking about that. And he said, well, whenever you're ready, uh, make that step. And from the time he said that, it, like I said, it took me about a year, but I, I finally stepped away and, and then I picked up a whole lot of uh, uh, other things, additional things also. So we already talked about the patrol and the challenges that they face daily, but Arapahoe Basin is just a really unique mountain in a lot of ways. It's very high elevation, as we mentioned, really rugged terrain. Uh, the weather can be extreme. And then, you know, put on top of all that, you're in Summit County, which is really the epicenter of the U.S. ski industry and ground zero for a lot of different issues that that we're, that this industry is is coping with, whether it's crowds or multi-passes or a lot of different things. So just talk about the challenges of keeping that machine moving on a daily basis, especially over the course of this October <laughs> to sometimes August seasons that you're known for. <laughs> well, you, you know, we joke that uh, one in a million type of events seem to happen here all the time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're right. We're, we're centered among some of the best resorts in the world, you know, Keystone, Breckenridge, Copper Mountain, Loveland's just over the pass, Vail and Winter Park are just a stone throw away. And, uh, and, you know, we always, whatever the issue seems to be, it either seems to be happening here or close by. And, um, you know, and Colorado is, uh, you know, people in Colorado really like to ski and people also really like to visit Colorado and ski. So, you know, tremendous demand for skiing and, uh, tremendously high expectations by skiers. And so, we kind of have to stay on top of things all the time. So thinking back on the last 34 years since you arrived at Arapahoe Basin in 1988 from 
Uh, well, I guess you were in Colorado for a little while before that, but but since you arrived from Arizona, just reflecting on what the Colorado ski landscape looked like then, just take us through this from your point of view as someone who's really been at the center of it. How has that evolved over these past three plus decades? Well, I mean, a lot has changed since then. I, you know, I got to see in my time snowboarding come online, uh, detachable lifts becoming you know commonplace. I think. Areas have grown substantially. There've been a, you know, a number of expansions over that time period. I think, you know, people's expectations have changed. The, the whole shift in pass usage, you know, it used to be that season pass holders skied 40 days a year and not that many people had passes to now seems like the majority of people almost have season passes so it's it it continues to grow and change and develop on a lot of levels but you know what continues to stay the same is people out there sliding around and <laughs> having fun and s- smiles on their faces and that that part has not changed so as you've been watching this whole thing and and helping really as a key part in that evolution at, at in 2005, you became the chief operating officer of Arapaho Basin. Just talk a little bit about how that opportunity came up and how that differed from your director of mountain operations role. Well, you know, it differed a lot. And um, it came about in 1990, or, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, 2005. Our, our company invested in a ski area in California called Bear Valley. And uh, Jim went out to California and was the COO for uh, Bear Valley for about 10 years. And I got his job. So it was a, a very good opportunity for me. Um, and uh, it, it I've loved almost every minute of it. So you've seen some really interesting changes. And as I said, in many ways have been right at the center of them. So a little remembered fact that we'll suss out here is that Vale tried to buy Arapahoe Basin along with Breckenridge and Keystone from Ralston Perino, which we discussed back in 1997. And I've seen different versions of the story here, so I'm, I'm going to ask for your help to straighten this out. Some say that Vale never owned a basin, and some say that the U.S. Justice Department said they couldn't buy all three, so a basin was put up for sale by Vale to outside bidders. And either way, the Justice Department said, no, no, you can't have all three. So straighten this out for us. Did Vale ever actually own a basin? And how did Dundee, your current owners, come to own the ski area? Well, uh, so the answer to the first question, yes, Vale did own it for a little while. Um, mm-hmm. Probably deserves a little asterisk next to that. So mm-hmm. it, it, was a, it was a funny, crazy time. And um, Jim and I worked closely on that. And there's a lot going on that he and I were not privy to. But, you know, there were two companies. And in, in uh, 93, Keystone and uh, Ralston had bought Breckenridge also. So our company had become three ski areas. And that company merged with Vail Associates and formed what is Vail Resorts. <clears throat> and, and the Justice Department was involved. And the announcement of approval of this was taken a while. And the word on the street was that the Department of Justice uh, was going to force the divestiture, the spinoff of one of the ski areas. And, and, and the rumor was that it was Keystone and Breck and it was taking so long, uh, Keystone or Breckenridge, and it was taking so long because, you know, they were 
all the parties involved were having trouble agreeing. Mm-hmm. And to our total surprise, we found out A Basin, the smallest of the five, was the one that was going to be spun off. So we were we were actually shocked when that happened. Um, and then that the process itself of selling A Basin took quite a while. I think it took nine months. And uh, Jim and I, you know, we had all kinds of buying groups come and check out the place. And Jim and I were the tour guides for that. And they were doing their due diligence. And we'd sit with them with all the boxes of records. And we'd do tours on the mountain. And and I don't think the process was going well for Vail. And, And I don't know all the reasons for that, but it was getting close to the time when the justice department said they were going to take things over uh, because we hadn't been sold yet. And at the last minute, this guy named Ned Goodman, who had started a company in Canada at that time called Dundee had met with Adam Aaron and uh, they made a deal kind of the last minute to sell Arapaho basin to Dundee. And uh, it was this, Simple as that, but it took a long time to get there. What was going through your head at the time? Because at this point, you've been working for Apoa Basin for almost a decade. I'd imagine you have, you're pretty attached to the place and probably have pretty strong feelings about where it should go in the future. How were you feeling when you thought Vale may buy the place? And we have to remember, put this in the context of the 90s, Vale then was not what Vale is today and how we think of Vale with 40 resorts and this global network, right? So, so what were you thinking? What was going through your head? during the veil piece of this? And then how did you feel when Dundee emerged as a new owners and, and you just had to move ahead with that, whether you liked it or not? You know, there was a lot of mixed emotions through the whole time. Um, you know, on lo- one level I was, you know, and like you said that very well, when we say veil in 1997, it means veil resort, veil ski area. Um, and, and, you know, they were definitely the best in the business. There was no question about that. And it was very exciting that, that we were going to be part of that organization. Uh, we we weren't sure what it meant to Arapahoe Basin, but it was very exciting that we were going to be part of that organization. And then when, when we found out we weren't, that we were going to be spun off, un- initially, it was shock. I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was it was so shocking. It was comical. I mean, we were just yeah. laughing like you're, you're kidding. <laughs> Aiden is being spun off. You gotta be kidding me. Wow. Um, but then it turned into a really good feeling and a feeling of excitement because, you know, we were going to get to, to build something really special. And, and when we were part of Keystone, you know, we were, we were purely the ski mountain and we were part of a larger business and, you can't say at the time we were an independent business. We weren't, you know, all our marketing, all our accounting, all our IT, all our human resources was through Keystone. And we had the opportunity to, you know, build our own business. And and it, it became really exciting, really fun. Um, really, it, it was one of the most enjoyable things I got to do in my career was was kind of be a part of moving the basin from being just a piece of Keystone to its own um, resort standing on its own two feet. 
So at the end of the process, several employees, including, as I understand it, you, but correct me if I'm wrong, signed a, a quote unquote de- declaration of independence from Vail. Just tell us about that document and how it helped stoke the culture of Arapahoe Basin that I would imagine flows through to today. Yeah, we, we I mean, we did that, did that all in pure fun. And um, I think uh, Julie Maglicetti, who worked with us back then, she she came up with the ideas, I recall. But now, even as we were part of Keystone, we were always a little bit of the rebel, a little bit on their own. We were those guys up the road. Um, so it just kind of added to that sort of free-spirited feel. And we uh, we we really enjoyed it. We, re- we really liked being the different place, the place up the road, the place far away, place with the tough skiing, um, place with the rowdier group of employees. That was always part of our identity. So looking back on this whole thing, Alan, from a 2022 point of view, looking at 1997 America, it it seems so different to me that the Justice Department would get involved in ski area consolidation at all, A, and B, that they would not let this deal go through when you consider the size Vail is now compared to the size that it was then. And I, I, the recent analogy that comes to mind is Vail purchasing Seven Springs, Laurel, and Hidden Valley in Pennsylvania, which I'd imagine there's a lot of folks listening to this in Colorado who may not be familiar with those ski areas, but there are only 22 public ski areas in Pennsylvania, and Vail now owns eight of them. So they also <laughs> own Whitetail and Liberty and Round Top and Jack Frost and Big Boulder. And those those eight out of 22 is probably over half the skier visits in the state because those are very busy ski areas. I'm just uh, curious if you have any thoughts on this. If we... Fast forwarded that deal to 2022. Do you think there's any way the Justice Department would stop Vail from buying all three? You know, I, boy, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm the one <laughs> who knows too much about that since I didn't really understand what they did then. And I don't right. know that I understand what they're doing now. Or or I don't didn't understand why they did what they did. Um, I, I don't know. You know, I think in a lot of ways what they did has worked out well for Colorado. You know, the, when you look through the years, the the big companies that have been through from Ralston to Vail Resorts. Now ASC was involved at one time, Interwest, and now we have Altera and Icon, you know, in a lot of ways, I I think it's ended up as a pretty good split for a lot of people uh, with no, while, while Vail's biggest and, and, um, you know, Altera and we've got Aspen also are right up there. I think it's worked out pretty well. So, you know, maybe, maybe they knew something we didn't back then, but, uh, but I, I'm, I'm glad it's not all one company because all these different places have their unique characters and cultures. And um, I, I, I like the way it is. So Arapaho Basin went its own way clearly. And, and that worked out very well for a lot of different reasons, but even as an independent, a Basin continued to align itself with Vail for, for a couple decades, really, joining with a number of different passes, multi-mountain passes, leading up to the Epic Pass in 2008. And A Basin was a, a very important part of that pass for a long time before leaving in 2019, and we'll get into that in a minute. But uh, why did you decide to caucus with Vail 
in those past wars. You kind of had Copper and Winter Park on one side. You had Vale and Beaver Creek and Breck and Keystone on the other side. And there were all these different coalitions and alliances. Why did you end up on the Vale side of that battle battle line? Yeah, good question. So when when we were divested in, in 1997 and, and Dundee um, purchased Arapahoe Basin, as part of that deal, the Justice Department required that Vail work with a basin on a past deal for five years. Now, we could have gotten out of that, but Vail couldn't in those first five years. Um, a bit, and, and I think the Justice Department did that to help secure the success of a basin. Um, you know, and, and, and on a somewhat funny note, uh, a year after that happened, we had a check-in with the Justice Department and they were, they were uh, really pleased, almost surprised that we were doing well. So often <laughs> when these uh, breakup of companies occur, it doesn't always work out for everybody. So, right. um, so it, it worked. It, it wasn't perfect, um, but it worked. And, you know, we got to the end of five years and there just wasn't really a compelling reason to, to not renew. And, um, and, and, and Vail was on the move and, and Vail, uh, you know, by that time, you know, pre-epic, I, we had various versions of buddy passes, um, and, and Vail was doing well and we, we chose to stick with them. It, it worked for quite a while. So if these, you can correct me where I'm wrong here, but the, the basic pass products I've seen is it was kind of a. A Basin, Keystone, Breck Pass, and then you got a limited number of days at Vail and Beaver Creek. And Vail Mountain at the time still had a very expensive pass in the $2,000 or so range. So there was it was very much a locals product, very much focused on Summit County in the front range. So it sounds like those first five years went fine. And, and, and again, it was a different world, a different landscape. Talk about how those products evolved over time and and how you got to the point where where there was a breaking point and, and Epic and that Vail Association just wasn't right anymore. Yeah. Well, you, you know, there were some interesting things. So when when the divestiture happened, that was before any of the really uh, inexpensive passes came about. And, you know, we I, I just by sheer luck, I happened to witness a really big event. There's over the uh, Labor Day weekend, there used to be a big sales event at the Gart Brothers store called Sneagrab. And, you know, a few other areas, I think Spirit Mountain in Minnesota and Bogus Basin had started doing these very inexpensive buddy pass type things, family passes. They had different names. And and Winter Park started doing it. And uh, I happened to be at Sneagrab and every ski area had a booth there. And uh the line at Winter Park's booth went down the street, around the corner, around the block, and there was nobody buying um, passes at the other places. I think they were, I think they were called friends and family, and we were watching people on the street introduce themselves to each other and say, <laughs> "Let's get a," because you had to, buy, you had to have four people to buy them at right. first. And they'd watch that, and as all this was going on, a uh, um, uh, a friend of mine who was in charge of marketing at Keystone, which was Vail then. Um, she came down and she stood at our booth and she was watching this go down and she had this like 
look of fear in her face. And she's like, I got to go back and talk to people about this. <laughs> the next day, Vail announced essentially the same program. And so, you know, just by luck, I happened to watch some of that go down at, at Sneagrab. But, uh, you know, so, so those passes went on over time that morphed into the Epic pass. And, um, and also over that time, starting in 2001, um, we started doing a lot of capital improvements and, and our business really changed. Um, so, you know, through, through the time that Ralston owned a basin, they, they did a bunch at the beginning. And then our, our, our business for that 20 year period was very steady. There would be peaks and valleys driven by snowfall, but, but, you know, we were doing a little over 200,000 skiers a year. And um, we started doing some big changes and we started doing a lot more skiers as a result. And, you know, Basin's been around 75 years, probably for 70 years of that time. The number one business strategy was get more people here. But, but we reached a point that all of a sudden we, we had enough people and then, and then we had too many people and, that that's when things really started changing. Those last couple of years we were with Vale, which coincided with uh, uh, some more big projects that we did. Our weekends all of a sudden became almost unmanageable, and uh, you know people were we were losing some of our most faithful uh, customers because they couldn't find a parking place or they were parking four miles down the road. And, um, and it was getting really difficult on our employees to really manage those big numbers uh, because we weren't suited for that. So what, what it really became was kind of a sober awakening about the reality of what our capacity was. And, you know, it, it didn't happen overnight, but, but we realized we had to make a very big change. And, and we just, as a result, we just kept having to hire more and more people, which is hard to hire people. And while on one level, um, business was great and we were making more and more money, there were some cracks in the foundation. Like our, our margins were starting to fall down, which they shouldn't do when you're doing more and more people. And and uh, we really had to change things up. I, I, you know, I, I, I've often made this joke with people that we were kind of like a, you know, a, a, a rock and roll star who's kind of at the peak of their performance and they have some big hits, but maybe behind the scenes, there's a whole lot of turmoil in their lives. Like, you know, and uh, we were kind of like that on one level, everything looked great, but those who knew us closely realized that things, things were starting to come undone. So, so we had to make changes. So I, I can't imagine that this was an easy decision to make, Alan. How did you ultimately arrive at that decision and say, we're leaving the Epic Pass, which is a really big deal. And, and that is, you know, you're talking about a pass that you had been on since it came around in 2008. And a lot of people were used to using that as their season pass throughout Basin. It was 
it was very inexpensive. It also got them access to Keystone if they did the Summit County version. And, and you know, on that pass, they could get access to all these other places. So so I have to imagine that, uh, that this wasn't something you just woke up one day and decided to do. So just take us through the process of deciding with your team, okay, this is what we're doing. You know, consequently, you know, whatever happens, happens, but, but we're, we're making this decision. Yeah, no, you, you said that very well. It, it did not happen overnight. And, um, you know, we were, we were renewing the contract with Vail about every five years, four or five years. And the four years before we had talked about it some internally and, um, you know, and we've been working closely with Vale, and 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 we were just we were just growing apart, and and Vale was being incredibly successful with everything they did, but we just couldn't hang with them anymore. They they had such big resorts, and uh, you know, Keystone, Breckenridge, Vale, Beaver Creek. There's there's you know, so much room at those resorts to keep adding people and add people. And we couldn't, we couldn't do that anymore. And we, we had to do something different. And, and we spent a lot of time negotiating with Vale. Everybody was working in good faith, trying to come up with a solution, but, but we were just too different at that time. We just, we, we had to do something different. We couldn't, couldn't carry on the way we were. So how did Vale react when you broke the news to them that you were breaking up after 20 some years together? Yeah. You know, and I even think of it as more than 20. I think of it going back all the way to 78 when Keystone and A-Basin came together. So there were a lot of people that have been Keystone A-Basin people for decades, 40 years. You know, I I, I don't think Vale wanted to lose us. Um, I, I think they were disappointed. Um, but they had one model they were moving forward on and, and, and we just couldn't, we couldn't be a part of that anymore. So it was, I think, a surprise to everyone, uh, and including our staff when, when we finally, you know, when we, if, at first it was initially a smaller group, the senior team working on it. I, uh, my boss is a guy named Michael Cooper in Toronto and I worked really closely with him through this entire time. But I, I, I think Vale was bummed that mm. we did that. Did you try to work out anything like move you off such a cheap tier, maybe up to the full Epic Pass or something like that, rather than unlimited access? On I think the Summit County Pass was less than four hundred dollars. Yeah, you know we we did we did talk about a lot of different alternatives, and and we were on a very inexpensive pass that was Keystone and Arapahoe Basin, and that wasn't working for us anymore, and. I think it was working really well for them. And that, that, that kind of is a good symbol of the whole thing. We couldn't do that anymore. And they, they maybe thought that was one of the best pieces of it. So we, we just, you know, we, it was like two people that had been really close for a long time. We, we'd grown apart. So how did your guests react when you made this announcement? I mean, I watched the whole thing unfold and could see the social media content uh, comments and I'm sitting over here in the peanut gallery, but the folks who really love a base and are up there skiing all the time, how did they react to this decision? Well, you know, there was a, a tremendous amount of really positive, positive support. And uh, um, people were very excited for the change, particularly the people that have become uh, disenchanted with the, the parking issues that it had developed. And we had, 
those last couple years, our, our parking really had become a mess. And uh, uh, people were, were really excited about that. Now, I, I do have to say not everybody was, though, because there were a lot of people with strong connections to Keystone or, or maybe Breckenridge. And they, you know, there were people that would come up to me and say, Hey, the basin's my favorite, but I own a condo at Breck or I own a condo at Keystone. And, um, you know, they, they had to make a decision. So not everybody jumped ship with us. You know, there were a number of people that stayed with Vale for reasons like that. So there were, there turned out to be a lot of, downfalls of the epic pass in the later years such as crowding i have to imagine there were some upsides as well and and i imagine that has a lot to do with all this investment that arapaho basin has been able to make over the past couple decades so just talk real quick about the upside of that relationship and 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 how the mountain was able to grow during its time that it was aligned with Vale. you know I, i i think there were a lot of upsides with the relationship and the you know we 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 grew from averaging a little over 200,000 skiers a year. We did almost 600,000 skiers that last year with Vail. Wow. So, so the Vail relationship exposed us to a lot of people. And, and they sell a lot of passes. A lot of people out there have passes that were good at Arapaho Basin. And, and the relationship, if I could sum it up, the business relationship – it, it really rewarded high volume. Um, it was also a very low yielding per skier uh, deal. So it was good. We were very successful, but we thought, you know, when we made the change, there were a couple, there were a few things we were really trying to do. We, we had to make the experience better for our guests. And in doing so, we thought we could really improve our employee experience because, you know, when you have too many people, when you have way more people than your capacity suits, it it gets really tough on employees. So we did it to help our employees. And frankly, with, with a different model, we knew we could make more money. So the, the veil relationship was good, but, we're doing better now. Well, one of the reasons why it seemed like, again, as an outsider, that Vale really benefited from this relationship, and this will be my last question about Vale, is that Arapaho Basin, as I mentioned earlier, often stays open into the summer, July, or even August some years. Uh, vale is, has been traditionally fairly stingy with the long season, <laughs> particularly in the spring. They were pretty good about opening Keystone in October, but you know they would typically shut their mountains closed and they're, they're making a little more effort here these days. But A Basin was always the late closer. And then the second that you pulled out of the Epic Pass, they Vail announced that they would start to keep Breck open until Memorial Day. And they've actually kept it open later a couple of times since then. So did you kind of feel like taking advantage of it all? Like they were using you as their spring skiing option in Colorado? Well, I, I didn't feel like they were taking advantage of it. That was that was good for us too. And they're because being partnered with Vale, it it ensured a whole lot of skiers, both early and late. Um, I, I do remember there was a cover of, I believe, Ski Magazine. I know, mm-hmm. Stuart, you're great at digging up all this great old information, <laughs> but 
it, it was after one of our really good seasons. I think we'd been open 243 days and, and there was an article on Vail and it says, uh, it said Vail opened 243 days a year, which we, we all <laughs> chuckled and, and thought that was awesome. I'll see um, if I can dig, dig that one up. <laughs> uh, I think it was, it was one of them anyway. Um, you know, as far as them going along with Breck, I, we didn't feel bad about that. I think, you know, by the end of the season, we, we do get some ticket holders coming. It's a lot of pass holders. You know, in our case, it's it's uh, our, our pass holders, our partner pass holders. And so by, by Breck being open, we're not competing with them on much except maybe tickets. And um, because, you know, the Epic pass holder is going to go to the Epic Resort and the A-Basin or Icon pass holder is going to go to A-Basin. So I, I think it's worked out for well. I think it's worked out well for them from what I can tell. And it hasn't really impacted us at all. So you did end up on, shortly after you left the Epic Pass, you ended up on the Mountain Collective and the Icon Passes. So take us through the process of connecting with those guys and how you ended up joining in both of those coalitions. Yeah. um, When we were, throughout this process, we were doing a ton of modeling. Any scenario we could think of we were trying to develop a model for and it 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 really came down to to three alternatives for us and you know one was to stick with Vale to stay on the epic pass and we we knew what those numbers were we didn't have to uh, make make anything up there uh the second alternative was to just stay on our own not join a big partnership maybe pick up a few smaller partnerships along the way. We were, we were already doing a ticket exchange with Taos at that time. Um, or join Icon. And um, we we thought the Icon Resorts was a great group of resorts for certain. And, you know, our, our goals for years in our marketing department, you know, when we're trying to develop and build our brand is – you know, we want to be in those top 10 lists. It might be, uh, you know, best terrain or best character, or best culture. But when you see lists that include resorts like Alta and Jackson Hole uh, and Taos, we we aspire to be um, with those resorts. They, they have a lot in common with us. And, 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 and by the time we had left, um, epic we were we were showing up in those lists and being ranked with those kind of resorts so it was a you know icon we thought was a really good fit for us and it, you know in all our modeling we thought we thought going out on our own we would be successful we we could do better on our own than we had done with epic and we thought we could do even better of that with icon and um you know, and probably one of the biggest drivers of that is, you know, particularly in Colorado, there's so many great places to ski. Um, people want the opportunity to, to ski different places. And, um, you know, I, li- I listened to your interview with Mary Kate up at, at Jackson. At, at, at Jackson, a pass holder up there, I mean, maybe he's got Targi, he or she has Targi close by but they're not probably going to travel all that much and they're going to buy a, 
a pass at Jackson, which is quite a bit more expensive than a pass in Summit County at A Basin. And they're going to ski Jackson all the time. I think Colorado is different. I think people want to take advantage of all these great resorts around them. And, and we thought we would have the best success where we gave people an opportunity to ski lots of different good resorts. At the same time as you joined these coalitions, Alan, you, you sort of were able to take your own pass back at Arapahoe Basin, right? And, and take back some of the pricing power that perhaps you'd lost under Vail. So it, for a while, it seemed like everybody was joining Vail in the race to the bottom. And, and to give Vail credit, I do think they've done a lot to make the season pass a more accessible product for casual skiers. And you mentioned that earlier. It seems like everyone has a season pass now, right? But just talk a little bit about uh, the the pricing power that you now have at Arapahoe Basin and the ability to kind of control your own fate and your own uh, your own volume at your ski area, but you still keep it pretty affordable. So just talk about that whole philosophy of how you've approached Arapahoe Basin's past now that it's been liberated from a past coalition. Yeah, you know, that, that was a really important part of what we did. And, uh, you know, I mentioned we had been part of that Keystone Arapahoe Pass, which really was hard for us to have any pricing power to do anything with our own products. And so we're not part of that anymore. And, and that is an incredible value pass. They've morphed it a little bit and given some days at Breckenridge and Crested Butte now. And then, then there's the Icon Base Pass and full Icon Pass. But now, you know, we're somewhere in between that, that Keystone Pass and the, the Icon Base Pass. And, and we think that is more of our place. And, uh, you know, I think our, our pass holders have proven that we're, I think we're worth it. And, uh, you know, obviously we can't go crazy high on passes that just won't work in Colorado, but, but we're definitely doing better with our pass sales now than we did before. So let's take stock here. 2019, you leave the Epic Pass, you join Icon, you join Mountain Collective, you take back control of your own pass. I believe you said you did 600,000 skier visits your last year with Epic. And you laid this out really well in, in uh, your Al's blog, which is a, a really terrific scary blog. We talk about that in a moment, but lay this out for us here on the podcast. How is the experience different now? And, and what affirms that you made the right decision in making these, these tough moves a few years ago that have paid off now in the way our Arapahoe Basin feels day to day? You know, um, well, to, to start just, uh, I, I can't, um, overstate how much COVID complicated all of this, you know, so it's a, it was a heck of a time to choose to totally transform your business. And, uh, so, so that has been a work in progress and we're probably not quite as far along as we would like to be as a result of COVID, but, but we're getting better, but, you know, I, I, I think there are a couple of, uh, you know, really big affirmations for us. Um, one, which is more subjective, but on a daily basis, many people come up to me every day and say, hey, we love what you guys are doing. Thank you. The experience here is so much better. You know, the lift lines in the 80s and 90s were much longer at the basin than they are now. And uh, people are really appreciative of that. And 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 so we know from all our one-on-ones that people like it from our surveys that we do with people like it. And, you know, we know 
we've had financially this year, February and March were record months for us. Mm. And, and we did it on about 65% of the skiers we had in 2019. So we're creating a better experience for the guests. It's a, it's a, it's a more enjoyable place to work and we're making more money. And how many, how many skier visits are you doing annually now? You know, uh, so we've had two COVID years mm. and this year is close to normal. Although I'd really describe this as a COVID year too, because we really got walloped by Omicron back around Christmas. Yeah. But, um, I think we're going to end up this year a little over 400. Um, oh, wow. And I think the sweet spot for us is probably going to be 450 to five once we uh, settle down a little bit more. And uh, I was hoping for normal this year. It, it didn't get normal till about January, but uh, next year is going to be normal. You mentioned in a recent <laughs> blog post that you only had one day where you had to use your overflow parking lot this season. And, and I'm not sure if I have that exactly right, but you mentioned several times parking as the issue that ultimately was one of the factors that drove you away from the Epic Pass. Just, just talk about that and how much better that piece of the experience is today and how foundational that is for a better experience overall. You know, we, we did, I, I wrote that uh, probably a couple months ago. I, I don't remember exactly when we, we have had a couple more days when we overflowed for a couple hours each day. But, but for, so, you know, it's, we've been open since mid-October and we've had about four and a half hours where parking was uh, f- over full. So I, I think that's pretty good. Um, but it, 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 it is, uh, you know, all, re- uh, at least resorts on public land use this term called comfortable carrying capacity. And it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a review of all of your facilities, your mountain, your lifts and uphill capacity, your indoor spaces, your bathrooms, your tables at restaurants, and your parking. And and for us, parking is is the lowest number. Um, you know, our, our mountain and our lifts actually can handle quite a bit more than than what our CCC is. But but when people when people arrive, especially if they've had a tough drive getting here and there's not a spot for them, that, that is one of the most upset, angry guests you'll ever encounter. And, and we just, it had been happening. I mean, basically it had happened every weekend for four or five months of the year, those last couple of years. Um, and, and we just couldn't do it anymore. And so that has we had to address that, you know, over time, we're probably going to try and figure out how to squeak out a few more parking spots, but, but that's, that's really the weak link. That's when things start falling apart for us being busy. It happens with parking first. You know, you've driven such an interesting story over these past five, four to five years, Alan, and the leaving the Epic Pass partnership was maybe the most prominent piece of this, but it was just a small piece of the story. And I want to get into this a little bit because you've done some really interesting things. So you, you announced recently that you were decreasing season pass sales by 10% from the previous season. So you would sell 10% fewer. You already limit day tickets, either walk up or online. And, and at the same time, as you're decreasing the overall number of people there, 
you are replacing the Lanawi Mountain Triple, which is only 20 years old, <laughs> with a high-speed six-pack. So you're decreasing the number of people there. You're increasing uphill capacity. That, to me, is the headline. Anyone I talk, Anytime I talk to anyone about a basin, I, I use this as a case study for a mountain that is deliberately trying to create a better experience, but at the same time, still making it very accessible. Everybody has an Icon Pass or Mountain Collective or one of these things, and your day tickets are not these you know, $250 that we're seeing at Steamboat and elsewhere. So just talk about that whole narrative, Alan, and 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 it, it just how you've done it and why. It's, it's so yeah. amazing, I think. Yeah. Boy, that's a lot to talk about, Stuart. That's a good question. <laughs> you know... Um, those things are linked and they're not linked. So with Epic and even post Epic, Lenaway didn't have enough capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we had to do something about it. We've, you know, we've replaced or we've removed five lifts over the last 20 years. That was all of our lifts. And we've even added a couple more on top of that. Um, but, but Lenaway was an issue. We needed a higher capacity lift. And, and there's a process we go through with the Forest Service in our master planning and going through NEPA and an EIS. And, and we worked on that specifically for what's the best lift situation for Lenaway. And we, you know, current Lenaway has a, a capacity of 1,800 people per hour. We, we determined that 2,400 people per hour was what we really wanted, what fit on the mountain. And we also determined that that lift for our guests, they really wanted a faster detachable lift there. And uh, we thought, and then we spent time deciding between a four pack and a six pack. And, and we thought we would come closer to 2,400 people per hour with a six pack. And on top of that, you know, lift goes up to almost 12,500 feet. And uh, it can be a little breezy up there from time to time and, and six packs do better in the wind. So we, we really made this whole lift decision <clears throat> on its own. I mean, it was for the, the whole greater good of the ski area, but it wasn't necessarily linked to what we did with either passes or tickets. And, um, you know, COVID as bad as COVID was on so many levels, we did learn some extraordinary lessons as a part of COVID. And, um, you know, in Colorado and Summit County where we live, the, the regulators, the County health department, the state health department, they were, they were tough. You know, they, they were, uh, were very serious about trying to control COVID and, um, the, there was a lot of restrictions that we had to work through. And, you know, one of them was we needed to limit the number of skiers on a given day. We needed to keep from having crazy crowds, particularly early on in COVID when it was so uncertain as to what was going on. And we, we reached a point that we decided, well, look, we're going to let our passes be unrestricted. Um, but we're not going to sell an unlimited amount of them. And and that was a, that was a really big deal for us. You know, we, uh, 
that first COVID year, that spring, we opened for a couple weeks at the end of the season. Um, and we did a reservation system. And, and the biggest learn, thing we learned out of that was our, our pass holders hated the reservation yeah. system. Right. And, you know, if we were going to go forward, we couldn't do that. They had to get the joy and the flexibility and, and all the good things about having a season pass if, 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 if it was going to be successful. So when we got to the next year, we decided keep the pass unrestricted, make it available, no reservations, but we're going to control it by limiting the number of season passes. And that turned out to be a good thing. And, um, and, and, you know, the following year we dropped the number by 10% and we, we did that to, you know, to show how serious we are about maintaining quality here. And, and I think that's about the right number of passes. We may fudge it a little up or down over time, but, but it was, uh, it was to really show our commitment that, that we want this experience to be fantastic. And at the same time, Alan, you continue to make adjustments. I noticed, and, and this wasn't a big headline because Icon Pass made so many big moves when they announced their new pass suite, adding Chamonix and Sun Valley and Snow Basin. But you actually pulled the blackouts from A Basin off the Icon Base Pass. So now there's no holiday blackouts at your mountain over Christmas or New Year's or MLK. Just talk about that decision. Yeah, it, it was, um, you know, we, we just didn't, the way it was set up, you know, we, we have our pass holders. There's a limited number of them. We're controlling the number of lift tickets that we sell. And then on what would be the busiest days everywhere else in skiing, we were blacking out this chunk of pass holders. Um, people that already had a pass to come here. And, and you know, let's just kind of do an example here that, uh, you know, maybe it's the Saturday of MLK weekend. and and there might be a thousand or fifteen hundred uh, icon base pass holders here if they weren't blacked out, and we couldn't we couldn't ratchet our ticketing system up enough to um, offset losing that thousand or fifteen hundred. Maybe we'd sell an extra three or four hundred tickets by dropping price, but we. It, it, we just don't think it's necessary for us. We just didn't have that swing in visitation specifically on that day. So, you know, what we're going to do now is, is let those icon people, icon base people come here, uh, you know, without the restrictions and we'll continue to play with our tickets to tr keep trying to hit that sweet spot on the holidays. Nice. All right. Let's go through your, through your lift fleet here. Where is Lenawi going? That's a pretty new lift. It's only 20 years old. Are you, did you sell that to someone? You know, we have, uh, uh, we're just kind of buttoning up the deal, but Sunlight Resort is going to buy it. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and uh, do, do you, do you know where they're going to put it or, or are you not privy to those plans? Are they going to replace <laughs> I, I, something or? I'm, I'm not sure what I'm privy. I'm not sure what I can say <laughs> and what I can't say, but I think they're working on plan to replace their fleet. And uh, I think they're going to use it for one of their lifts. Beautiful. All right. So sunlight for the listeners who are not familiar is, uh, is an independent ski area down the highway in, in Colorado, closer down to Aspen. Uh, in, in 2010, Alan, a basin installed its first high speed lift, the black mountain express. So you were a little late to the high speed game. What made you decide that was the right time to put in a, a detachable? You know, by 2010, um, 
our, you know, our numbers had grown by then we were doing about 400,000 skiers a year, 400 plus thousand skiers a year. And we needed to up the capacity, although, you know, technically we didn't, it replaced a, a, a Jan fixed grip triple, which had a capacity of 18. But since it was the main on mountain lift for our beginners, it slowed and stopped a lot. So it, its real capacity was much lower than 1800. We went up to 2000, moved people around a lot better. And, you know, more and more of our guests were saying they want detachable lifts, they want fast lifts. And so it really, the lift really is the aorta coming out of the base area. And I, it, it was time. It was the right lift at the right time, I think. And nonetheless, 10 years later, when you replaced Polly, you replaced the old fixed script double with a new fixed script double with the exact same capacity. <laughs> so take us through that decision. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. People either totally get that decision and, and think it was the smartest decision ever, or, or they don't. And they think maybe we're not the smartest people around, but yeah, you know, when, when there are, some, there are a few resorts around that you know, there is the basic lift that they're going to use. And maybe they say they're always going to put in a fixed grip triple, or maybe they say every lift's going to be a detachable four pack or six pack. Most of us though, you know, have really different needs for different lifts. And, and we go through this whole, whole process when we're deciding what kind of lift to put in. And, you know, one of the first things is what do we want the capacity to be? Uh, what, what can the terrain handle? Um, what's the right number of people to, to put up the hill? And then, you know, there's some more questions. How long is the lift? If it's a, if it's a fixed grip lift, how long, if it's detachable, how long? And then what, what do the people want? Who is the lift servicing? And, you know, poly lift 1200 people per hour is what we wanted, but you know, we didn't need any more than that. It's only a seven minute lift ride. And, um, you know, the people that ride poly, they just love it. It is, it is such a great lift. And there's, there is something to be said for riding a double chair with, with maybe it's a new friend you just met, but maybe it's, you know, maybe it's an old friend, maybe it's your partner. Uh, maybe it's your kid, one of your kids. Um, but it, it just, it really made sense. It fit perfectly. We weren't interested in, in raising the capacity of that lift. And, um, I, I know for some, it's just a shocker that we would do that, but for the people kind of on the inside here, like there was no other choice. Uh, so speaking of fixed grip lifts in 2018, you did the Beavers expansion, which is a huge chunk of terrain. Uh, this has twice the vertical rise of black mountain, but you went with the fixed grip quad for that chunk of terrain. Uh, what went into that decision? And, and I know you just laid this all out for us, but specifically that pod, what made you say, okay, fixed grip is where we're going with the beavers. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think this applies to Zuma too. They're very similar. Um, you know, in both cases, we could get the uh, capacity we wanted with a fixed grip lift. I, I think both lifts are kind of right on the edge of how long you would want a fixed grip lift to be. They're about nine minutes. I don't think you want to lift any longer than that. Um, in both places, we are trying to have a really 
minimal environmental impact. And we did not build a road to the bottom of either of those lifts. And, you know, you, you can put in a detachable lift in a place where there's not a road. It's just a lot harder, a lot more expensive. You know, detachable lifts do cost at least twice as much as fixed grip lifts. They cost two, three, four times to maintain. Um, and, and we just thought it fit. I, you know, there was a heck of an argument to, to make both of them a detachable. I get, I get that and know that. But financially, it seemed to make the most sense to go with fixed grip lifts there. And at that point, we knew Lenaway was going to be a detachable lift. We just didn't know when. But it, it you know, we it, it made sense that Black Mountain Express and Lenaway, the core of the mountain, that that's the, the fleet of detachable lifts. And then we have these three kind of satellite lifts off at Poly, Beavers, and Suma. And, and, and I think it made sense. Although I, I understand why some people think it should have been a detachable. Was it the right decision looking on a few years out? I, th- I think it was the right decision. I do. So once that sixer goes in this summer, Alan, you're going to have the oldest lift on your mountain is going to be Zuma. And that was built in 2007. That must be the newest lift fleet in America. Are you done? Is there anywhere else in the mountain where you would like to put a lift? Steep gullies, maybe surface lift back to Pali. What, what, do, what are you thinking? Well, I don't think you're ever done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we don't have any plans right now. We're actually, uh, we have virtually completed our existing master plan and we're in the infancy of starting working on the next one. Um, I don't think you'll see one for steep gullies. Uh, This next master plan is going to be more about kind of fixing and improving all the stuff we already have. Um, I I think there's an opportunity for another lift or two that serves uh, uh, beginner skiing. So kind of not tiny, tiny lifts, but shorter lifts that do better for beginners. You might see something like that from us sometime in the next year. Um, we're, we're really working on a day, way to improve that experience, but um, no other big lifts out there today. So Al, you've overseen a couple of big terrain expansions. In 2007, you added Montezuma Bowl on the backside. Talk about how that addition changed the character of Rapaho Basin. You know, Z- Zuma was a, 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 just a beautiful addition for us. And, you know, at that time we were, doing about 300,000 skiers and, and Zuma took us over 400,000 skiers. And, and we were kind of, we were, we were bursting at the seams at that point. And it, it gave this incredible, it was an incredible relief valve for the rest of the place. And on top of that, it, it is just such a totally different experience. It's, it's South facing, it's warmer back there. Um, there are a couple of just, a plus cruiser trails black back there. Um, it's, you know, mostly open. Almost all of it is above timberline and it is just such a great and different experience. People love it. So a couple years ago, then about 10 years after that in 2018, you brought the beavers and steep gullies into the lift serve trail network. Just talk about that expansion. And, and it's interesting. Uh, you, the lift is sort of mid mountain, the bottom of beavers, quad and and you can take that back up 
you can keep skiing down and that's hike out to get back to Polly. So just talk about that whole pod and, and how you, how and why you brought it online and why you decided to put the lift where it is. Yeah. You know, we spent years, uh, working on where to put that lift and, and we looked at versions of multiple lifts for back there. It, it really is two distinct experiences uh, between the steep gullies and the beavers. Steep gully, gullies are all just pure double black diamond, as steep as it gets kind of terrain. And people that ski those, they have a, a hike they have to do uh, when they get out of it. I, I think we say it's a 30-minute hike, probably for the, the super fit. It's a 15-minute hike for most of it's, it's us. It's like 20, 25-minute walk out of there. Okay. And, and, you know, I, I think it's okay that that's not easily lift served. It, it, it's, it's okay that it's people have to work much harder to get out of there because it, the terrain is not for everybody. It's for the people that love it. It is just incredible. I mean, ski in the fourth steep gullies is one of the greatest ski experiences around. I think people enjoy that. And then we put the other lift in a place that we thought was the best opportunity to maximize uh, the experience on snow, bringing people together. And, and the beavers, I would describe as a couple of experiences, is there, there's a couple of big blue trails. They're, they're pretty tough, dark blue trails, but uh, Lofer and Davis, and there's a lot of just fantastic glade skiing. So not double black, but just a lot of good black glade skiing, really, really fun stuff. And we think it made the most sense. You know, originally the first several years we were working on the idea that lift was going to go down another 700 vertical feet lower. And uh, just the closer we looked at it, as you got to the valley bottom, there's not quite as much snow. Um, and it actually finishes with some really steep pitches. So that's not the best scenario. Um, you know, and ultimately we, 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 we did more modeling and we figured out if, uh, if we are going to go all the way to the bottom, it might only be open 75 to 90 days a season. And we thought putting it where we did it, uh, it, uh, we thought it'd be open about 150 days a season, which is in the few years it's been open. That's about what it's been open. Um, and you know, so we put in a shorter fixed grip lift, versus uh, had we gone to the bottom it would have had to been a detachable lift it was just too long and so it was longer it would have been triple the cost and open half the time so it 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 really made sense to put the lift where we did i think but sometimes sometimes it, i mean it takes you years to figure that stuff out sometimes and and it did us well, that was an area where locals had skied for a long time. Were they upset when you dropped that lift back there or, or they come to appreciate the fact that they can lap it now? You know, there were definitely some people that didn't want us to do it. It, it was a, it was heavily used area. And I, you know, I, I don't quite call it backcountry. So I think backcountry also has a, uh, a qualitative subject, subjective interpretation that you're kind of out there on your own. 100% of the people that skied the beavers and the steep gullies rode our chairlifts to do so. And, you know, there were places the steep gullies were moguled up even before we added them to the ski area. So, oh, wow. you know, so it, 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 in some ways, it, 
wasn't that different. But but to answer your question, that yeah, there were some people that didn't want us to do it. Um, but there's a lot of people that love it. A much bigger number of people, I think, that do like it. So that's two pretty big ex- terrain expansions in the course of 15 years. Do you think you're done? You know, I, I don't think there's another big expansion out there for us. And I don't see anything in the next 10 years. There won't be anything in our next master plan. There there could be a sliver here or a sliver there, but uh, I don't think there's a whole lot more. So, so one of my favorite things in skiing and skiing culture, Alan, is the long season and Arapahoe Basin is the king here. You've opened as early as October 9th, 2009 and closed as late as August 10th, 1995, which is just incredible because that was before you even put in any snowmaking. And you've hit July 4th seven different times. You know, I talked to, I interviewed uh, Ski Cooper General Manager Dan Torcell on the podcast last year. And he said, you know, we're at 10,500 feet as our base. We do have the snow to stay open past April, but we just can't do it. There's only so many there's only room for so many of those ski areas in the market. You obviously are the king of this. Just talk about that commitment to the long season and why this is so important to to Arapahoe Basin's culture and identity as a mountain. You know, I, I, I have to comment on that one year we stayed open till August, uh, okay. which was a funny time. I mean, it was an incredible snow year. It snowed so much in uh, March, April, May, and June. It, w- it was amazing. And uh but also our standards were probably a little different back then. We okay. made people we made people walk a lot. It you know it's probably reminiscent of some of those pictures you might see of Killington. Yep. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know the the basin in the springtime is you know there's nothing quite like it. It it really is our niche, and uh, um, you know so much of the mountains north facing the snow holds up really well. It's uh, it's north facing. It's cooler, and and there is just a, a special feeling here that you just you just don't get anywhere else. There's people that only visit us in April, May, and June, and you know I can kind of tell what month is it, it is when I see certain people showing up, and um, it it's it's what we do. It's who we are. It's what we do. And a big part of that, Alan, is the beach. Tell us about the beach. <laughs> the beach is a, an interesting place. Uh, it's probably got some of the best tailgating anywhere. Uh, it is. Uh, people have a lot of fun down there. Sometimes it gets a little too rowdy for us, and we have to deal with that. But you know, it's it's a place. The edge of the parking lot is right against the slope, and um, we actually reserve beach spots for people. And uh, you know, it's. It's great fun. It's crazy. It's as crazy as it gets. <laughs> All right, Alan, last question for you here today, and then I'll let you go. So one of, and I mentioned this earlier, one of the most unique things you've done is Al's blog. And I, I've noticed that a lot of the independent ski areas, one example is Magic Mountain out here in Vermont, is a lot of the independent ski areas have really taken hold of their own narrative. And they have this strong storyteller at the top who really sells the image of the mountain and makes it a place people want to be part of. And Jeff Hathaway at Magic Mountain is excellent at that. He's taken a mountain that's surrounded by Stratton, which is owned by Altera, and Mount Snow and Okima, which are owned by Vail, and 
you know, Magic only has one double chair that goes to their summits, fifteen hundred foot <laughs> vertical drop. But he's but past sales have quadrupled in the past five years since Jeff took over because he's really good at creating this story. And I think that you've done a really good job of that at Arapahoe Basin. And Al's blog is must-read material for any ski journalist, anyone covering it, and anyone really who loves a basin. So so talk about Al's blog, why you started it, where people can find it, and, and, and why you keep doing it and why you think it's important. As the leader of the ski area, I'm sure you have no shortage of things to do. So why is this something that you have con- continued to do for so long? You know, it, uh, it, it, it's fun for one thing um, yeah. to do. And, you know, when I st- it started doing it, it, it kind of took a while for me to find my voice with it. I, I started it thinking, you know, everything I wrote was like a college essay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it doesn't need to be like that. And, very, you know, through the years, I have no shortage of friends and acquaintances giving me advice on how to do it and how to say it. <laughs> But, but I, you know, I kind of learned, you know, it doesn't have to be an essay. It, it uh, just, just share what's going on or mm-hmm. share a picture of what's going on. And I think a little insight people really appreciate. Now, sometimes there are, you know, more serious topics that we try and address in there. Um, you know, I, I try to communicate a little bit with marketing, but for the most part, I try to make it seem like it's not coming from marketing. It's just coming from me, uh, you know, with all the typos and misspellings included. But uh, <laughs> it, It's just an incredible way to connect with people. And uh, um, I, I think people really appreciate it. I meet, I meet so many of our guests because they see me walk by and they, they introduce themselves and tell me they've been reading it. And it, it's just been a very, 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 very good thing for us, I think. And, uh, you know, personally a good thing for me and hopefully you know people understand the story a little bit better well you've done a great job with it over the years uh you've done a great job with Arapahoe Basin and you've really crushed this interview too if I can say so so thank you so much for your time today I know you're in the middle of a a huge snowstorm there and you you as I said have no shortage of, of better things to do probably with your day but I cannot thank you enough for this time today and this insight and and the job you're doing at Arapahoe Basin to really show how an independent ski area can not just, uh, you know, survive this mega pass area, but can thrive in it. Well, Stuart, I I really appreciate it. And I've uh, listened to a bunch of your interviews now and I really enjoy them. And, you know, kudos to you. I think you're bringing a lot of information out to people that they weren't getting before. And I, I can't thank you enough. Well, thanks so much for saying that, Al. Hopefully at some point we can make some turns up there at a basin and you can show me some of the places we've been talking about yourself. All right. Can't wait. That's Alan Hentroth, Chief Operating Officer of Arapahoe Basin, Colorado. Is there a better skiers ski area in America than a basin? Seriously. And I don't say this lightly, but they're literally doing everything right up there. And I love the way they course corrected when Epic started to change that place into something that, frankly, it just wasn't. I cannot overstate how huge of a move that was and how much brass it took to do that. So thank you very much for laying that all out for us, Al. Please go check out Al's blog for a steady diet of that kind of insight. And better yet, get up there and go skiing. 
with one of the longest seasons in the country, you can fit it in somewhere. And thank you all so much for listening. Coming your way next week, Summit at Snoqualmie General Manager Guy Lawrence. Then I have got a conversation booked with Ragged Mountain General Manager Eric Barnes, followed by Indie Pass founder Doug Fish, and two that I'll announce today, Real Skiers founder Jackson Hogan and I are going to talk a little gear, and the owners of little Paul Bunyan Ski Area in Wisconsin will join me after that. That is a terrific comeback story. Okay. I will see you on my email list when you subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. I get it, not everyone is into email. We get too many already. Trust me, I am not wasting your time here. This is not just spam. Give it a try, you will not regret it. Also, follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.